A good Monday morning to you on this August 23rd. Ryan Jesperson here with you. It's great to be back in the chair. Uh, Real talk, of course, on this Monday in just a second. Going to take on some of the issues we know that that matter to a lot of you, uh, both local, uh, depending on where you are, and international as well. We've got a jam-packed week coming up, a short week for us, Monday to Thursday. This episode and every episode we've done presented by our title sponsors at Bitcoin Well, the very first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company on planet Earth. I was keeping an eye last night. We're just out of the bush, by the way. You know, we've been hiking through the woods. No phones, no reception. It's been fabulous. And I couldn't help myself. I'm going, I wonder what wonder what crypto's doing right now. I wonder what Bitcoin's doing right now. It's on the rise again. Don't ask me why. Ask the team at Bitcoin Well. They're the ones that make sense of it all. You can find them right at the top of the sponsors page on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. David Hurley coming up in just a moment. A political consultant, a podcaster, uh, co-chair of two federal liberal campaigns uh, back in the mid-2000s. We're going to get his sense on on what he's picking up, the early storylines, you might call them, with this federal election looming September 20th. Uh, David Hurley, of course, of the Hurley Burley podcast and the Curse of Politics as well. He's got a great political panel podcast leading up to this federal election. Looking forward to that conversation. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to talk to Ophelia Cara. Ophelia is a is a harm reduction activist and an intravenous opioid user, a former client of the SafeWorks supervised consumption service down in Calgary. That one was closed down. We're going to get her sense on on why it's so important. This is going to be some real talk. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I want to applaud her in advance uh, for her willingness to come talk about this. You may or may not know that just a few days ago on August 20th, a collective of harm reduction groups and clients of recovery programs filed a statement of claim against the government of Alberta. They're taking the government of Alberta to court uh, based on how it is handling the harm reduction file. You might call it the opioid crisis file. So that conversation coming up and then in about 75 minutes from now or so, former associate minister, former Alberta progressive conservative MLA, Donna Kennedy Glanz, a lawyer out of Calgary, is going to join us. We're going to find out why she thinks that she was booted as vice chair on the board, the board of governors at the Banff Center, which is an arts incubator. We'll get into what the Banff Center is all about. Uh, DKG, as they call her, granted an interview back in May. So this is a number of months ago to the CBC where she was critical of Alberta's premier's handling of of dissent in the United Conservative Caucus. You remember Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes? Remember they were kicked out? It was quite a story at the time, and you can go back into our archives if you want to hear our conversations about that. She was critical about the premier's leadership. You'll remember uh, Donna herself, a former leadership candidate for the progressive conservatives. That's the one. That was right around the time. That was the era when Jason Kenney came in and won that, and then and then you'll remember the PCs in the Wild Rose. I have so much to catch up on right now. If you're like me, your brain is just going like I have six or seven or ten conversations going on in my brain. I want to get it all out because we haven't been together for a week. Real talkers. And how can I talk about the PCs and the Wild Rose merging and the United Conservative 
party's formation and then the leadership race without talking about Brian Jean. And so what's going on with Brian Jean right now? A 23 tweet thread over the past week, his assessment of provincial politics in Alberta. So we're going to ask, I mean, I'm curious what Ms. Kennedy Glantz will have to say about the Banff Center. I'm more curious for her assessment of what's going on with conservative politics in Alberta right now. So that's a conversation that we're looking forward to. And then at some point, of course, this week, it could be this morning, we're going to see how our conversations go. We're going to get into the results of our most recent question of the week. We had asked you, I mean, it feels like an eternity ago, doesn't it, that we were watching some of us, the Summer Olympic Games, and we were curious to pick your brains on, on how you felt about it. For some of you, the real Olympic boosters, the ones that love it, the ones that don't miss a minute, those of you that carry television sets from, from downstairs to upstairs, and then you've got, you've, you've got cable splitters, and, and you've, you're streaming on your tablets, and you've got four events going in, and you know who you are. We wanted to know how you felt about the Olympic Games in that context, but, but we also wanted to ask some tougher questions. Like in, in the area around reconciliation, a national conversation we have where, where the color orange is everywhere and you know exactly what it means when you see it. Did you have mixed feelings celebrating what, what some might say would be a spectacle of nationalism? Or, or might you call that overthinking it? Might the Olympics be a break from those tough but important conversations? What about some of the new events? Surfing. I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler. I don't know what's wrong. What's with real talkers and surfing? But. Like 30% of you said surfing should be out of the Olympics. I don't know what people have against surfing. I'm not really sure. You told us about your favorite events. You told us about whether or not you thought that Tokyo should have even been hosting the games in the first place. Nothing against Tokyo, nothing against Japan. But right now with this global pandemic still amid a fourth wave, that's undeniable now, isn't it? People were talking before about this fourth wave. Eh, I don't know. Undeniable now when we're off the trail. That's one of the first things I saw were COVID numbers in the province going, oh, these, these are familiar. These are familiar numbers. This is, this is what happens when you're in a wave. So should the Olympics have happened at all? Or, or did you perceive that to be unsafe? We'll get into the results of our question of the week today or tomorrow. We're going to figure that out. And of course, we want to let you know that our question of the week now, the new one, the fresh one is up at ryanjesperson.com right at the top of the page. We're asking you about the federal election, obviously. That's what we're most curious about. So we invite you to 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 take part in that question of the week takes about three minutes. Uh, You can take longer if you like, because there's some fill in the blanks type options. But we want to know where you're at right now. We're going to ask some, quite frankly, some rude questions. We're going to ask you questions that grandma and grandpa probably would have told you you don't ask at the dinner table. Uh, We'll leave sex and religion out of it right now, unless maybe we're talking about things like women's health. But we are going to ask you about your politics out of the gates. Are you a decided voter or not? Uh, If so, who are you going to be voting for and why? And then we get into some of the issues and your perceptions around the leaders and and some of the the early talking points that we're hearing from the federal parties that want to form government. Again, that question of the week, it's open right now. You can take it at this minute by clicking on question of the week right at the top of the page at ryanjesperson.com. David Hurley, in just one minute, we want to remind you that this show happens because we have a roster of incredible sponsors, including the team at Park Power. I'm checking out Park Power's Instagram yesterday, and this is a company that provides internet, electricity, and natural gas, and, and they're driving conversation around what future 
power sources look like. This is a forward-thinking, future-oriented company. They kill it on social media. They do a great job on customer service as well. You can find them online right now at parkpower.ca. And when you visit their website, make sure you have the promo code handy when, when not if, but when you're taking your business over there. The promo code 2021-REALTALK will get you 70 bucks off your first bill at parkpower.ca. Also, big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. I don't know what they're, what they're, I mean, you get to this point, this point in the year, it's kind of that shoulder season, isn't it? Where they're starting to prepare for winter and all the drafting and design work that they do with their partners, but also wrapping up projects, always building that roster of satisfied clients and customers. I talked to Mike from Eden. They're most proud of their return business and their referrals. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Let's get to our leadoff guest on this Monday morning. If, if you talk politics in Canada, you know who David Hurley is. I mean, he's a longtime political strategist, the principal partner at the Gandalf Group, a polling and research firm. His podcast, The Hurley Burley, is one of Canada's leading public affairs pods. And of course, he's just launched a short time ago as well with Jenny Burns Scott Reed, The Curse of Politics podcast, making his return to Real Talk. David, welcome back. It's good to have you here. Great to be here. I don't know how you do this, Ryan. Uh, carry this show all by yourself. You need to Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne, or at least an Ed McMahon, <laughs> yeah. to bounce things off of. Don't yeah, you? yeah, that's right. Well, I just, uh, I'd actually, this kind of makes it a little bit awkward off the gates, uh, David, because I actually had pitched Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne on doing a podcast, but they told me they had a better offer. <laughs> they, they told me I, I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford them. So, so here we are. Uh, you, I mean, you, you kind of launched this, this. this this new era, right? I mean, you've been involved. You co-chaired two liberal campaigns in, in the 2000s. Boy, have politics ever changed, right? And how they're covered right now. I mean, you're launching a second podcast just to cover this federal election. And then you've also got things. I mean, you've got on Twitter. I want to ask you about Christian Freeland in just a second in this misinformation flag and and, and Jagmeet Singh's. Everyone gives him credit for he's always on TikTok. I mean, how much of election campaigns changed in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years? It's so it's so much, Ryan. I mean, you have shows like yours and ours uh, that people who are super interested in politics can get into and really drill down and learn about the minutia of the campaign. And then you've got the vast majority of people who have no traditional news source to get things from anymore. I mean, back when I was running campaigns, most people still watched the nightly news. Most people still read a newspaper. I did a focus group yesterday and I was talking to people. I said, where do you get your information about the campaign from? And they were saying, well, you know, I listen to the radio when I'm in the car. Um, I get some stuff from friends. I see some stuff in my Facebook feed. Uh, I may watch the national news once or twice a week. Um, and that's, and that's it. And so, you know, at the end of the first week of the campaign, I asked this group of 10 swing voters, what had broken through, what had interested them in the first week of the campaign? The most interesting thing that happened in politics in Canada in the first week of the campaign was a fundraising appeal sent out by the Ontario Provincial PCs that was labeled an invoice, mocked up to look like an invoice rather than a fundraising appeal. You got a fair bit of coverage in Ontario, and that's what our Ontario people in the focus group were talking about. Nothing to do with the federal campaign. This interesting little fundraising tidbit. So it's really more difficult to get 
a coherent narrative through for the political parties than it used to be. Is anybody doing a good job right now on a coherent, direct plan? I mean, every party is going to have its slogans. Every party is going to have its its kind of key talking points. But out of the gates, you know, election just under a month away from now is is anybody would you say I hate to put it this way, but in the lead, has anybody really made an impression on you? Well, when I'm looking at uh, the campaign and when I'm looking at the polling results that we're seeing, I have to say that the only people who've made any real positive impact right now are the Conservatives uh, and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Aaron O'Toole released his platform last week. And uh, again, in that focus group I was doing, people were aware that he had done that. They couldn't name any element of it, but they, are aware, they were aware that he had done that. And therefore, he had a plan. And, no, and uh, as far as they were concerned, the Liberals had not introduced a plan and didn't obviously have one. And uh, so those things stood in contrast. And they, they, they are getting the impression that O'Toole is quite interested in the economy, uh, which is also a positioning for him that is solid. And it's standing in stark contrast. The Conservatives achieved a little, but it looks big compared to the backwards movement of the Liberal campaign in the first week. When they took a very large lead in public opinion, and blew it over the course of the first seven days by making themselves and their own motivations the issue of the election campaign. Because they put nothing on the table in terms of a rationale for why they needed a renewed and probable majority mandate, in fact, no rationale for why they called the election, people have concluded it's all about Trudeau's ambition. And so now this is a referendum on him at the moment. This is not about whether people want childcare. This is not about what, whether people uh, care about uh, how the pandemic was managed. This is now about Mr. Trudeau and they've got to get it back on things that matter to people. So you, you, you describe it as a referendum on the prime minister. I mean, I remember anybody that was participating yourself and, and me included in political panels in October of 2019, the morning after that federal election, Everybody was was essentially under the assumption that a minority government means that we'll probably head back to the polls within two years. I mean, it just seemed to be almost an agreed statement of fact. So the pandemic enters. Right. And all of a sudden, this is the factor, of course, that determines whether or not this was an appropriate time. Right. I mean, nobody would care that there was a federal election with a minority government if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I don't think early election would be an issue, even if we were in a pandemic, if the liberals had given a rationale for one, mm. if there had been a reason for one. It is not so much that we're in an election, although people will gripe about spending money we don't have to. But that primarily results when people don't think the election's about anything. And there was, as far as people can tell, nothing that was at issue in Parliament or in the country that required this. I was an advocate of the Liberals calling this election. I'm not critical of them. In fact, if I'm critical, it's that they waited too long and they perhaps missed a better window for themselves. But surely when you are dissolving a minority parliament and they were unable to have it dissolved for them through trickery in parliament, they had to re dissolve it themselves. When you do that, you have to provide a rationale, especially when you're going for a majority. What is it I need to do that I can't do right now? And one of the huge things that's missing from their repertoire right now is any wedge issue with the New Democrats. Like, what is it the liberals wanted to do that the New Democrats wouldn't have let them do? Mm. And that's not clear to people. And so it raises questions and it reinforces in people's minds that the only purpose for the election is for Mr. Trudeau to win a majority. 
That's not very compelling. They exacerbated that with their launch and with their slogan. When you say to people, we had your back, now it's time to hear your voice. That translates into, we had your back, now we want your vote. That's not a very compelling way to ask for it. It's interesting. I mean, I'll acknowledge that we're talking to you from Alberta, right? This is conservative country. As, as That's much as- why I'm wearing my Rough Rider. That's why I'm wearing my Rough Rider shirt to deliberately alienate all of your Alberta list. Yeah, you know what, though? We're, we're, we're seeing uh, significant and rapid growth in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So I don't know exactly. You, you might actually be growing the brand for us a little bit, David. But, you know, it's- Anything I can do to help. It's fascinating when people talk about you know, federal campaigns, you look at members of parliament, MPs, conservative MPs from Alberta, they're, they're really, I mean, I, there, there's some hyperbole here, but they're not going to campaign here. They're going to campaign in BC. They're going to campaign in Ontario. They're going to campaign where the conservatives need to make inroads. Andrew Scheer didn't do a terrible, I mean, it wasn't a terrible showing uh, in the last federal election, despite Peter McKay's assessment of it, you know, missing an open net. You know, we don't necessarily talk about uh, popular vote in Canada, but the conservatives had more votes than the liberals did cumulatively. They ran up the scoreboard on the prairies. The question is, can Aaron O'Toole and his message and this platform you're talking about resonate where they need it to the most, which is Canada's most populated cities? Does he have a leg to stand on with regards to uh, his performance as opposition leader relatively early in his tenure as leader of the conservatives? And can you see them gaining some ground there in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, etc.? Well, I think this is easily the most significant development of the first week, our conservative gains in the province of Ontario. So uh, different polls will differ as to what the current standings are in Ontario, but all polls will show that the gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives has narrowed significantly. And in one poll that I'm looking at daily, the ECOS daily tracking poll, the Conservatives are now ahead in Ontario. So when the Conservatives are close or ahead in Ontario, that means that not only is the liberal majority out of reach, but a liberal plurality is in question uh, at this point. So yes, that's the most dramatic development of the first week of the campaign is conservative competitiveness in Ontario, which despite your boosting of Andrew Scheer did not happen for one day in 2019. Even after blackface, the conservatives were not competitive and in Ontario at any point. And right now they are. Do the premiers uh, in particular in Ontario and Alberta hurt or help Aaron O'Toole? They hurt him. Uh, they hurt him. And in fact, when you talked about Alberta conservatives going elsewhere to try to swing votes, I think they'd probably be wise to stay home mm. uh, because there isn't actually a lot of market across the country for what conservatives from Alberta have to say. Um, to be honest, it's a very it, it's a very limiting political ideology for them in Ontario and in the lower mainland of British Columbia and in Atlantic Canada and particularly in Quebec. So, I mean, much of what Aaron O'Toole is trying to do in this campaign is to break away from the image of the Conservative Party as dominated by Alberta Conservatives. Um, and uh, he's, I think, having some early success at doing that. Uh, but no, Jason Kenney is a detriment even in Alberta and a significant detriment to the Conservative cause elsewhere.
I've got an interesting note from Jen here on our live chat. It's great to see everybody back, by the way. Real talkers after a week away, the live chat is humming, David. And she says, I definitely have conservative values, but I'm an anything but conservative voter right now. She says the platform ideas seem completely out of touch, uh, which I think is an interesting one. You know, people can say I have conservative values, but I don't necessarily feel like I have a home in this conservative party. Is there a party that's doing a good job right now of reaching out to these undecideds? You talked to us about the 90 minutes you spent with these 10 undecided voters. What, what sort of a factor draws somebody in? What earns somebody's vote? Is it one tiny little minutia piece of policy or, or, or is it feeling welcomed within a political movement? How do you reach the undecideds? Uh, I guess it's a combination of those things, but fundamentally there's two different theories and um, some people subscribe to the theory and, and many of Mr. Harper's campaigns were run like this, that you find a small segment of the population that has a specific need and you target a policy toward that need. So we're going to have a tax credit for people who want to send their kids to minor sports, or we're going to have a tax credit for this or that. And you micro target your messaging to micro segments of the population. I think that can work when the campaign isn't about anything. When the election doesn't appear to have anything at stake, I think micro-targeting can work. But I think a big meta-narrative, if you can create one, swamps micro-targeting. So what really gets people is a story, a narrative in which they can see themselves in it. So it's not just a set of policies. It's not just a leader. It's how all those things come together to create a story that people can understand. Most people aren't going to read the platforms. They're not going to know what most of the parties are standing for, but they're going to get some sort of overall impression. And they're going to make their decision based on that impression. And do they see themselves in the liberal story or do they see themselves in the NDP story or do they see themselves in the conservative story? And they're going to have to live in that story for the next four years. Right now, the liberals don't have a story. You talked, I saw it, I follow you on Twitter at the Hurley Burley. People should do the same. And uh, you noted that in this 90 minute conversation you had with these 10 people, the word Afghanistan didn't come up even once. I mean, this is a, this is an international uh, debacle seems to be disrespectful. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's horrific. People are getting killed. People are worried about getting killed. The future. Uh, I mean, I'm. what do you even say, David? Uh you know, I've seen that the G7 uh, uh, British Prime Minister, of course, Boris Johnson, saying that they should convene. They should talk about this. People are wondering if Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will make himself available, leaving the campaign to participate in these G7 meetings. Why do you think it's not an issue for Canadian voters? Is, is, is it just tough for people to draw the line between what's happening in Afghanistan right now and federal politics? Uh, is, is, is it the fact that people perceive there to be more important or pressing or pertinent issues? Why do you think it is that the word Afghanistan didn't come up even once in an hour and a half? Is it is it too harsh to say that people don't care? Um, <clears throat> we don't have elections decided on foreign policy in Canada. Never have unless you include free trade. Um, we had a couple of elections in Canada in which Canadian troops were fighting in Afghanistan and the war in Afghanistan was not an issue in those election campaigns. There's two weeks left to go in August. There's two weeks left to go camping. There's uh, two weeks to get ready for your kids to go back to school in a very uncertain environment. Um, 
there's a federal election going on, um, there's other things going on in your life, people don't care. I'm sure that the national news ratings are at an extraordinarily low ebb because they're leading with five minutes of Afghanistan, and I bet you nobody's watching. Hmm. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just when you put it that way, but it, it, it's true, isn't it? I mean, it's true. People can be appalled. People can be horrified. But a lot of times what's going to matter most to people is what's happening in their own backyard. It's what's happening in their own communities. Always. Obviously. And 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 I mean, it is it is harsh to say it. But I mean, sometimes when you got to tell the truth, I guess the truth hurts. So, you know, that one of the great politicians of all time, Tip O'Neill, the longtime speaker of the House of Representatives, Democrat from Massachusetts, said famously, all politics is local. Hmm. Very well said. So people are going to try to find ways, including strategists. I mean, if you know, if you're in the liberal war room right now, you're not, I, I, I imagine, thrilled uh, to see that ground lost, that lead lost in Ontario. You also probably acknowledge you've got some time to do something about it. So we can probably expect that things are going to get a little bit nastier right now. I want to talk about the shots that the liberals are taking in, in just a second. Uh, including an edited video that that uh, Christia Freeland shared a short time ago, earning her a slap on the wrist from Twitter, which is not great for a deputy prime minister. But can we expect to see more attacks on the conservatives from the liberals and others who are going to essentially try to paint Aaron O'Toole as somebody who's going to roll back vaccination requirements for federal public servants? Despite whatever Aaron O'Toole can say about his position on a woman's right to choose, they're going to hit them hard on abortion again. Is is it going to be abortion, anti-vaxxers and the like? Is this what people should expect? I think that you should expect attacks from the liberals for sure. Um, but I think they're going to have to be a little bit better executed than they've been, than they've been to date. I think that they did well on the abortion issue last week and they should not abandon that issue. Mr. O'Toole raised that in his platform. Um, and so he's asked for scrutiny on that point and uh, the liberals should give it to him. Uh, you know, I mean, when you're launching an attack like, uh, Minister Freeland did. You just can't uh, have a mistake like that. And they should not have edited that video. I, I, I know it. The full video doesn't change the content, frankly. It just uh, makes it a little bit more confusing. But what it did is uh, by editing the video, they completely undercut its effectiveness. Even if Twitter hadn't done that, just the news that it is edited. I mean, if I'm a, if I, I'm a liberal, so if the conservatives put out a video of, of uh, Trudeau, and say, we've edited this video, but trust us, it's all the original context in there. I'm not going to believe them. I'm going to believe that they have constructed a video. So it loses its credibility immediately. But the fact of the matter is, uh, nobody in Canada has considered Mr. O'Toole as a potential prime minister until three days ago. And so, uh, yes, his platform and his ideas and his party need to come under scrutiny from the Liberals. For sure. Like start with, I mentioned on the I mentioned on the podcast this morning, it's their policy to balance the budget in 10 years from uh, from now. And Canadians find that somewhat attractive because they like there to be a path back to balance. But that 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 includes some significant decisions in terms of cuts and uh, cuts in spending. So what does that actually mean? What is a what is a path to balance in 10 years? mean in terms of uh, in terms of cuts to government spending i think they're going to have to get into issues like that because elections are about choices they're not about um they're they're not about just picking the uh 
picking one great option. They are about choices between flawed options. And people know the liberal option is flawed, and the liberal's job is to make sure people know how flawed the conservative option is. Hmm. Uh, Jeremy's watching. He says, for what it's worth, I do care about what's happening in Afghanistan. He says it became a fulcrum for my adult years. It's become the Vietnam for millennials. He says, and what's happening there now is worth an analysis, um, which is, I think, an astute comment. The whole healthcare thing, I mean, for people that aren't familiar, people that have no idea, David, what the hell we're talking about with regards to this video and Christian Freeland, it's it's essentially, and correct me if I'm if I'm dumbing it down too much, it's it's cutting video to have Aaron O'Toole say that private healthcare can be great while eliminating his caveat, which says as long as there's a robust universal access, et cetera, et cetera, right? Is this the type of thing that that Canadians will rally around? Is 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 two-tiered health care as it's been referred to here in Western Canada for many years, as much of a polarizing or effective election talking point as some people might think it is? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Most Canadians are dead set against two-tier health care. Let's be clear about the video. The full video has Aaron O'Toole explaining why he thinks that private options to the public system are helpful and desirable and should be encouraged. Um, he cites the example in Saskatchewan of having private diagnostic clinics. Um, and he's the whole tenor of that uh, video is about his favorable, about how favorable he is toward private health care. Now, he does insert a now that's all, of course, including a robust public system, which he knows he has to insert for political reasons. But the video is clear and it's true of most conservatives. They believe that a private alternative to Medicare would be helpful and desirable. And that's not what most Canadians think. And so that is always going to be something that if fully exposed to the public makes them seem offside and offside on a core value for people. If you're, uh, you know, taking a position where you believe that as of a few days ago, millions of Canadians are starting to evaluate whether or not Aaron O'Toole has what they might call prime ministerial qualities, how far does he have to distance himself from? I mean, here's here's the thing. Here's a bit of background for you. When when we open our conversation here, David, and I'm asking you about how much campaigns have changed, how much social media plays a role in digital media and, and all of this type of thing. You're not going to have something go viral or you're not going to have something grab people's attention unless sometimes it's funny or silly or creative. But what I lament from time to time is that it really dumbs down the politics and we see it a lot. And if I talk about the Aaron O'Toole outhouse video, the porta potty video, everybody knows what I'm talking about. If I talk about the conservatives, Willy Wonka video uh, from a couple of weeks ago, everybody knows what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that the conservatives are alone on an island there. We see political parties and political candidates, for that matter, do it all the time. But that's not the type of thing I want to see a prime minister doing. That's not the type of thing I want to see a governing party or a party capable of governing release. How damaging can that kind of stuff be? Well, I mean, you know, to your point about Willy Wonka, the conservatives have uh, imported some social media strategists who worked with Boris Johnson. Uh, and worked on Brexit in the UK. And they have a very unorthodox style of uh, getting people's attention on social media. And those of us who, you know, prefer uh, sage discourse on the opinion pages of the leading uh, newspapers can, um, uh, 
can laugh at it or bemoan it, um, but it probably works. It probably penetrates. Think back to the people I was talking about who are scrolling through their Facebook feed, grabbing a little bit of news on the radio, uh, or talking to a friend about the election campaign, and that's where they're getting their news that's where they're getting their news from. It's, you know, you have to do something extraordinary and interesting to break through to those people. And, you know, again, small things matter in the absence of big things. If we were having a fight about free trade, then these kinds of tactics might not be very, very important. But we're not having a fight about really much, if anything. So people are looking to what is interesting, right? What the leaders are saying is actually not particularly interesting. They're announcing large amounts of money to spend on things that it's not obvious to people what will happen as a consequence of that. And uh, so people are having a hard time getting a handle on what the election's fundamentally about. And when they are having a hard time getting a handle on what the election's fundamentally about, they will be diverted by distractions. The liberals... uh attempting or, or, or maybe with varying degrees of effort, depending on which jurisdiction you're talking about, attempting to get deals done with the provinces and territories on $10 a day child care w- was obviously strategically timed. They've got some deals in place and other provinces they don't. And, and in some provinces, they might never uh, Alberta included. How much of a role do you think specifically $10 a day child care will be, how much of a role will it play when it comes to this campaign? Very little. Hmm. Very little. $10 a day child care is a great policy. Let me be clear, as a person, I'm hugely in favor of affordable child care and early education um, <clears throat> for children in the country and for parents in the country. So I think it's great. It's terrible politics. The reality is I've Nobody has polled more on this subject than I have over the years because Paul Martin's government introduced this policy. Kathleen Wynne's government had this policy. I've been polling on this politically for years. I can tell you that the only people who would possibly vote on $10 a day childcare are mothers of children who need childcare right now. Not women who are older than that, and not men of any age. So you're talking about an extremely narrow slice of the population that sees this so much in their self-interest that they will actually vote on it. Lots of people support it and think it's a good idea, but that won't be the issue that decides their vote. But this is, but it gives the liberals, uh, and, and for that matter, maybe the NDP, quite frankly, as well, more of an opportunity to use it as a wedge, right, David? Like, can't, can't you say, if you're Justin Trudeau in the debate, can't you say we're the party that wants to prioritize affordable child care? We're the party that made CERB available to Canadians as soon as possible. We're the party that does this. You know, they're the party, you know, meaning the conservatives, their biggest threat, I think, this election, aside from maybe vote splitting with the NDP, but they're the party whose former leader, Stephen Harper, said that the spending, you know, during during uh, COVID-19, during the pandemic was, was, was out of control, was too much, was excessive. They're the party that doesn't want you to have universal child, right? I mean, it becomes part of a bigger narrative. We're the ones that care about the well-being of your family. They're the ones that care about the CEOs and the fat cats. Like, generally speaking, that's what it allows you to do, right? It's so interesting that you would raise that. It's so interesting that you would raise that because I think, Ryan, that, 
you know, if I was running the liberal campaign now, what I would be consumed with is we now have an election that seems like it's really revolving around affordability and economic security. And uh, the liberals didn't come equipped to fight that campaign. So their decision now is, do I try to get into that affordability economy frame and win it against the conservatives? Or do I try to change that frame from the economy and affordability into what I had wanted to talk about, which is care and childcare, long-term care, social issues? Or as a third option, do I anticipate that ultimately this election will be about COVID? Because the last two weeks of the campaign are likely to be happening at a time when the Delta variant is very strong in the country and when kids are going back to school. And so COVID could be very top of mind. Um, and, um, and maybe I need to instead, maybe I need to ignore actually what's going on right now and position myself to win decisively in the last two weeks when COVID once again takes over the election campaign. Really interesting strategic uh, dilemma for them or consideration for them. How much does the environment factor in? Uh, Aaron O'Toole released, what was it, a number of months ago, uh, a plan. Uh, a, that, that's, that's what people, I mean, you're, you're the guy that talks to the focus groups. You're the, you're the guy that asks these questions. Voters said, right, in the major urban centers in October into November of 2019, one of the big reasons why they didn't vote for the conservatives was because they didn't believe that there was a, and the keyword, a credible climate plan. How much does that factor in this time, two years later? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's another one of these things. I hate to be the person that says these things, but like Afghanistan, it's another important, hugely important issue that doesn't manifest itself hugely that way politically. Um, there are some people who will vote on the basis of the strongest environmental or climate plan. It's not a lot of those people. Um, there are a lot more people, especially in central Canada and maybe in the lower mainland of British Columbia, whose point of view is, if you don't take climate change seriously, I'm not an expert in plans and I'm not gonna judge one plan versus another, but if you don't appear to take this issue seriously, then I can't really take you seriously as a prospective government. So Scheer went out of his way not to take it seriously in 2019, and, and O'Toole is doing something of the opposite, has tried to have a competitive policy. And that may be enough uh, to, rub that, to rub that issue out for most people. Um, it's not going to be fair to say that he doesn't have a policy. It's going to be fair to say he doesn't have as good a policy as the liberals do on it. And I suspect that's not going to ultimately matter that much. Yeah, I, I like speaking just candidly, I, I think that what's important to people at, at, at a ground level of understanding, like at the average person's level of understanding, we we recognize that that, uh, you know, human influenced climate change is real. I think that I think that people have moved beyond that debate. Most people have. And, and quite frankly, I don't have a lot of time uh, for those that haven't. Uh, and we need to cut back our emissions. Uh, I think those are the two statements that most people would agree with i do not think yeah. that most people would automatically agree that a specific 
carbon tax at a specific dollar amount is what's required to save the planet. As a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of room for debate on that. And I think we need to have more debate on that. So I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think that this has to be, uh, you know, this isn't one party acknowledges climate change and one party doesn't. Uh, There can be different plans. And I think that Canadians would have a lot of time for debating and discussing those different plans. And quite frankly, I think that that's a healthy exercise. I actually think Canadians would be pretty disturbed to hear that the climate, uh, that the carbon price is going to go up to $170 a ton and what that implications of that are for household expenditures. That's, that's something that I always thought was as a significant liberal vulnerability on this campaign. It's why I thought, frankly, that the policy that they have on climate change to be give them credit, I think is very courageous because, you know, $170 increase in, uh, tax on, on a, a barrel of uh, oil um, results in uh, a seventy dollars or one hundred seventy dollar carb- a ton carbon tax results in a forty percent increase in the price of a liter of gasoline. Now I'm old enough to remember when the Conservatives got run out of office for proposing a four point five cent a liter increase in the tax on gasoline. Um, so you know I think that uh, the Liberals have kind of gotten away with the carbon pricing initiative, which is, um, which is uh, you know, expensive for Canadians. And, uh, and if that becomes prominent, could be a problem for them. Ryan's watching right now on, on, on our live chat. He says, I don't trust Justin Trudeau to deliver a single election promise given his track record. Now, when I, when, I, when I read Ryan's comment, the first one I think of is probably, I don't know if it's the most famous one or not. 2015, first past the post, says it's going to be the last election. He's, he promised electoral reform, didn't deliver it four years later, hasn't delivered it six years later. Does the average voter remember stuff like that? Does the average voter care about stuff like that? Or do we mind just being lied to? Oh, well, come on, let's be fair. They promised the child... They promised the Canada child benefit and they achieved uh, uh, the greatest reduction in the in poverty in, in Canadian history uh, delivered it. They promised child care and they have uh, and they have uh, delivered it. They promised that they would get uh, Canadian uh, oil to Tidewater and they're building the TMX pipeline. There's a lot. They promised to get rid of boil water advisories and there are hundreds of fewer boil water advisories than they were when they took office. They have done lots of things. They haven't done all the things that they said they would do, but they have done lots of the things that they said they would do. And I don't think they're any worse on that than any other government particularly. Um, And uh, in terms of first past the post, uh, I think that for some on the left, that's a real sticking point. Uh, and a promise that they thought was going to vault their party, whether it's NDP or Green, into a greater role of influence in Canadian politics. I don't think electoral reform has ever been of significant interest to most Canadians. You know, people might rightfully accuse us. I'm just looping you in so you can share some of the criticism, although it's probably me because I'm asking you the questions of treating this like some sort of an American political conversation where there's only two parties. I haven't asked you about the People's Party of Canada. Mad Max Bernier will not be permitted to participate in the leaders debates mid-September 8th and 9th, I think it is. I've not really asked you about the NDP. The, the biggest things I've seen with regards to the NDP, and again, pardon me, I've been in the backcountry for a week, but apparently people are pissed off that Jagmeet Singh has an expensive watch. That's what I understand. He's promising $5,000 to Canadians whose rent has gone up and accounts for more than 30% of their income, and they want to rename Toronto Danforth 
to to what is it again? Leighton Danforth or Danforth Leighton or something like that. that so so I mean that's the kind of stuff. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd be curious for your assessment on that. And and then there's the greens. Like what is going on with the greens? I have no idea. I mean it's it's almost as though. They I mean, that's that's a Trojan horse type situation. That party is being blown up from the inside. I mean, I'm asking you about three huge conversations here as part of one question. But what do you pull out from all the noise? What are a couple of the key storylines to keep an eye on with uh, the NDP supporters are going to be pissed if I refer to them as a fringe party because they're not. They're not a fringe party, but I don't think anybody's believes that they're threatening to form a government right now. What are some of the key storylines you're keeping an eye on with the others? Uh, well, the Greens aren't really a party right now. I don't know that the Greens are worthy, uh, merit a serious conversation. They're not running a national campaign. They've put no resources toward their national campaign. They don't appear to be trying to uh, compete in the discourse of the election campaign. It's a, like a series of independent candidacies running in ridings across the country, all calling themselves Green, but not really under any collective policy or leader umbrella. Uh, they, uh, you know, I, I, a few years ago, I thought they were on the, on the, uh, on the precipice of taking off and perhaps replacing the NDP on the left in Canadian politics. They've completely, completely blown that, and they're more likely to disappear entirely than they are to have any kind of breakthrough. The NDP had a dumb day yesterday. That latent thing was uh, as much as you know. People remember Jack fondly and are sorry that he died prematurely. Uh, that was a that's not an interesting thing to say to Canadians that you want to rename uh, a street after him. But on gen- in general, you shouldn't dismiss the NDP. People, Canadians love Jagmeet Singh. Canadians think Jagmeet Singh's great um, and uh, easily the most popular of the leaders. And among young people under the age of 35, his favorables are through the roof. And. They are having a little trouble turning all that goodwill goodwill into votes right now. Uh, But it's only one week into the campaign. I don't write them off at all. And they're a real threat to the liberals if they are able to grow their support in any significant way. Because as the conservatives grow, it puts even more pressure on the liberals to collapse the NDP vote. So I don't think they're fringe. I think they're players in B.C., I think they're players in parts of Ontario. I think they're players in parts of Atlanta, Canada, and uh, and they have they have growth potential. The People's Party, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, the polling I'm seeing is showing the People's Party over four percent. Not sure Max shouldn't have been in the debate on that narrow criteria. Although I'm personally happy not to see him in the debate. Uh, but the People's Party is actually, you know, uh, it's dangerous to rely on regional numbers out of tracking because the sample sizes are small. But there appears to have been measurable growth in the People's Party in the province of Ontario over the first week of the campaign. If you were and I'll ask you this in closing, David, really appreciate your time. If, if, if you were co-chair of the NDP campaign right now, what's one thing you would do to turn that 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 I mean, geez, if, if you're in any business, the demographics people care about typically are the young ones, right, or the younger ones. So that's got to be encouraging to know that he pulls well with regards to popularity, with regards to how people feel about his leadership capabilities, his charisma, all of the things that a good leader has to bring. So how do you turn that into votes? What's one thing you would advise the federal NDP to do? 
Well, first of all, politics is not the same as selling sneakers. So in politics, the older cohort is much more coveted than the younger cohort. A voter, a supporter over the age of 65 is worth two supporters under the age of uh, 35 Mm. in terms of voter turnout. Because uh, young people just don't turn out in the same numbers that older people do to vote. Uh, so that's a challenge is turning even your strong poll numbers in among young people into actual votes in the ballot box. Uh, what I would do is I would keep hammering away at Justin Trudeau and Justin Trudeau's motivations. People right now, seeing is where Trudeau was at in 2015. People think he's pure. People think he just wants to make the world a better place. And... Um, so uh, and, and people think that Trudeau has become kind of a politician who will say whatever he needs to say. And I think that uh, their wedge is likely to be more on leadership than it is on policy in this election campaign. David Hurley is the principal partner at the Gandalf Group. He hosts the Hurley Burley. You can check it out at the Hurley And of course, subscribe to his new project as well. The Curse of Politics podcast they're doing great work him and and his two co-hosts that we just quite frankly couldn't afford covering this federal election coming up on september 20th it's always great to have you here on the show my man thanks for doing it thanks for having me on and don't forget to mention that i'm a diehard saskatchewan rough riders fan you should have seen what happened to her as a matter of fact you can go back and you can watch this on youtube later see what happens to our comments section when you mention the riders it's like this rider nation just rises (laughs) it's like it's like what happens when the montreal Canadiens come into any other nhl city right it's the same sort of a thing all of a sudden all these sweaters emerge no surprise there well i'm just sad that edmonton can't field a team anymore oh jeez Hurley, how much time do you have now? You want to get into this right now? Are you talking about the COVID thing? (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking about the COVID thing. Yeah, I just read about that. They're defaulting on a game this week. Right. Hey, you know what? I got an idea for you Elks players. If you want to get paid, get vaccinated. Okay. Okay. Do oh, I don't have enough information to go on here to offer comment on the record. How's that? David Hurley. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah. My understanding on this, um, we got, I don't know, is, is, is the biggest Elks fan in the room, uh, Sam Brooks, who I know, Sam, you got your hands full and I'm sort of being a little bit unfair to you right now because technically your duties are about to ramp up here as we transition to our next conversation, but, but real quick. And again, I'll acknowledge, and, and, and I won't even apologize for it. Uh, just out of the woods and so i'm getting up to speed on these stories my understanding is the elks played the lions right and 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 there's some is there some speculation that maybe some of the vancouver players tested positive for covid and and that that they may have contracted in that game or what am i I, i've heard a little bit of that this quite frankly this story is pretty much news to me as well um i you know as of this morning this thursday's game against the argos is postponed uh, we don't know if it is actually a scratch yet. It is, as to my understanding, is postponed at this point, and you know they're they're unable to go through practice protocol. Okay, at this point. got it. Uh, so Sarah Hoyles, this is something. I guess obviously we can keep an eye on this story. This is this is an interesting one. Um, probably, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, the Vancouver Canucks obviously were were big time impacted by COVID. Remember, they had something like 20 plus cases. Uh, yeah, earlier right. in the NHL season. Right now, it's saying that multiple positive COVID-19 tests. They're not, there isn't a release of actual okay. numbers, but it's, yeah, their week four opener against the Argonauts. So Got it. Pulled. I thought Hurley was just taking a, a crack at how the team's being run. I, th- I thought it was a shot at the quarterback. 
You know, that's my quarterback. Uh, but uh, yeah, there you go. And, and obviously, ah, Trevor Harris is lights out this year. He's been yeah. great. Is he? Yeah. You know what? I've not been I've not been paying close. There, there's a whole lot going on right now. We do our best to stay on top of everything. I mean, I know this comment gets a little bit local, but we should probably also give a big shout out to the Edmonton Stingers for their championship. The CEBL championship, Edmonton national champs. Congratulations to them. Of course, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, Stingers. Yeah. What what sport? Yeah, basketball. Really? Yeah. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Are you serious? <laughs> Dead. I thought I thought I thought you were like the you're you're the resident. I mean, we're all big basketball fans, but you're like a super fan. And NBA uh, and yeah, NBA, then, yeah. And then, so the so the CEBL, which is I don't even know what that stands for. Canadian <laughs> probably Canadian Elite Basketball League is my guess. They had this they had the championship weekend. Edmonton played host. Um and, and again, wasn't there, didn't watch. All I know is that they won. But the CEBL is a fascinating game. Have you? I can't even remember what it's called. But they've got this when there's a certain point discrepancy. Like if a team goes up, and and someone will have to correct me on this because I'm probably going to blow it. Mm. You blew it. I'm going to blow it. But like when a team goes up by twenty or something like that, when there's a certain distance between, yeah. when there's a certain differential, they tack on nine, and then the first team to that score wins. So if you're up, my understanding here is if you're up like 80 to 60, then they say 89 games over at 89. Exactly. And so the so the Stingers in the semifinal game, I think it was against Ottawa, maybe it's all of a sudden Buddy steals the ball. They come down on a two on one. Buddy passes to other Buddy. He scores the layup game over. That's it. They got to the point. They got to that level. It's kind of a neat. I mean, it's it's a little gimmicky. But it's also kind of neat, and it also probably keeps the game a little bit more exciting. Nobody wants to watch a blowout anyway, right? Oh, exactly. Like, once it gets to 20 points, yeah. well, no, 20 points, they can close that. But, yeah, 30 points, then you're kind of like, come on. Kind of like, you know, let's go. So, so shout out to the Stingers. An amazing job there. Um, and, and this is our live chat today. Some of this, like, real talkers are fired up. Everybody missed one. I can't. Can I just talk for a second? Can I just tell you how, how much it, it, it just fills our bucket to know how important these conversations are each and every day really appreciate it really appreciate those of you that show up and have these conversations live and then of course those of you that chime in after the fact when this podcast hits later this afternoon we'd love to hear from you i'd love to hear your thoughts on what david hurley just put in front of us i know we covered a lot of ground we probably left a lot of stuff untouched that we could have got into more. I mean, I, I we'll do a whole and we're going to have daily discussions on this federal election. You can believe that. And we'll explore a whole bunch of different areas. I saw that that David's comments on child care uh, seemed to resonate poorly with some of you who, who were describing it as I saw uh, Alyssa called it a misogynistic comment that he had said that typically men aren't going to turn out to vote on things like child care. I disagree uh, in the sense that I don't think David's saying that men don't factor into child care or that men don't participate in child care or that men don't care about child care. What I think David is saying is that he's a pollster. He conducts focus groups. He, he's a researcher and his job is to determine what will resonate with people, what will drive people, what will get people out to vote and statistically speaking he's saying generally speaking and because i saw a lot of examples from from a lot of the fellas that are tuned in today saying i care about it 
I care about that. I saw Karen on here when, when David said it's going to be the, the, the women with young kids currently that would go out to vote on that. And Karen chimed in and said this. She said, here's one grandma that will show up and vote based on child care. It's not to say that there aren't people out there. But when your job is to find a way to get literally millions of people to turn up and vote for your political party or the party that's paying you and David's not on the liberal campaign right now, then you've got to understand what it is. What are those issues that are really going to resonate with people? And then how do you tap into it? I love kind of the behind the scenes thinking of people like that. These strategists. And of course, we'll have many more of them on the show in the weeks to come. Before we get to our next conversation, I'm expecting a powerful one here in just a minute on harm reduction. Uh, We're thrilled to have Ophelia Cara joining us. I wanted to remind you that the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge right now are already set to get you set. I hate to say it for winter. Before you realize it, I know the streets are going to get slippery and you're going to go, why? Oh, why? Did I not take the time to browse their selection online or in person at those two dealerships? The best selection of that Jeep brand in the entire province of Alberta. Why, oh, why did I wait until my rear wheel drive is sliding all over the place to start looking into the brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee? This is the one that Jeep has dumped millions and millions of dollars into completely redesigning. The fact that they're making room for all these new Grand Cherokees, the 2022s, means that there's some 2021s brand new themselves that have some pretty hot stickers on them right now. You can get into a Grand Cherokee Laredo for under 47 grand. If you want to learn more about St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge service, sales, just click the link under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Same deal with Westworld Computers. You can find them online or in person at westworld.ca. You'll be able to book a service appointment or... Go shopping. They'll ship anywhere across Canada. Westworld has been a proud family-owned business for more than 40 years. Daryl and his team, proud partners of ours. Relationship goes both ways. When you head in there to go shopping, you make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. Well, just a few days ago on Friday, on August 20th, a collective of harm reduction groups and clients of recovery programs, including Moms Stop the Harm. You've heard them on this show before. And the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society filed a statement of claim against the government of Alberta. That's right. They're taking the government to court over recent controversial changes to supervised consumption services. The the filing alleges that the new approach, that Alberta's new approach to the opioid epidemic, this health crisis, will have a significantly negative effect on people accessing services in Alberta. That includes our next guest. Ophelia Cara is a harm reduction activist and an intravenous opioid user. Uh, She's working to improve resources available for active drug users. And Ophelia has been a client of the supervised consumption site SafeWorks, which is slated for closure down in the city of Calgary. Ophelia, a warm welcome to you. And thanks for making time for us this morning here on Real Talk. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, as an interviewer, um, a remarkable opportunity to speak with somebody who says, hey, listen, I'll put all my cards on the table. I want to you. Uh, I want to have an open and frank conversation about people who use drugs and about the services that in many circumstances are literally 
saving lives. As a person who uses drugs yourself, what's prompted you to, to take a leadership role here and to go on the record and talk about your personal life in, in such an open way? Well, I suppose what prompted me to do that is the announcement of the closure of the SafeWork site downtown, because the SafeWork site is definitely a big part of how I managed to get my drug use under control and actually turn it into something that is not necessarily as harmful for me as it could be. Um, Before I started using the SafeWork site, I was definitely in a much, much worse position than I am now. And knowing how much they've helped me and how much amazing work they're doing, I just, I didn't want to like sit by and let them just get closed down. I figured I should at least do something to try to bring more awareness to the issue. Can you, can you, Explain to us the sort of on, on, on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, how uh, in particular safe works or, or just even more generally speaking, how a supervised consumption service fits in to your routine or, or, or fits into your life. Yeah, absolutely. So usually I go down to the safe work site about once a week. Um, that's mostly on Sundays, but the way that that kind of fits in is I go down whenever I'm there, I will take a shot, of course, while I'm there to catch up with everyone because you kind of get to know all the people who are there, both other clients and employees alike. And you kind of start to form a really close bond with them, especially since when you are a drug user, a lot of other people don't really want to be around you. So a lot of bonds with other doctors or friends who don't really do that, that, that kind of gets closed off and you get a little bit isolated. So the safe work site is also a good way to socialize and a way to still have other people who are in your life, who you talk to. Um, then I'll usually pick up more safe supplies to take home with me. So, you know, all the needles that I need, all the syringes, things like that. Um, and then that way I so that whenever I am taking my shots, even at home, um, I still have like those good clean supplies to use. And then I can also pick up naloxone kits, whatever it is I might need. So that makes it definitely a lot safer for taking my various prescriptions and everything like that. It's it's interesting to hear you refer to um, to to using drugs as taking your shots um, in, in in so many ways. People would describe, um, you know, dealing dealing with allergies or, or dealing with arthritis or dealing with anything else. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go get my shot or I'm going to take my shot. Um, what what role uh, do opioids play in your life? Is it would you describe it as a self-medicating type exercise? Would you describe it as recreational uh, drug use? Can you provide some insight into that? Um, For me in my life, it's definitely changed a lot, the way that I look at it and the role that it kind of plays for me. Because back when I had first gotten into this, it was definitely a really, really, really big part of my day. So I would spend essentially my entire day doing that whenever I possibly could. 
since I was just in so much pain when I got into this. And that was kind of my only reason to really keep going for the longest time. Whereas now I definitely have a lot more things that are keeping me going and keeping me waking up in the morning, keeping me motivated to still stay alive and push forward. So it's kind of decreased in importance in that sense. But I think the role that it probably plays for me now is it's a good sort of, well, not necessarily good, but it's almost like a self-care ritual for me where, you know, in the morning and then in the afternoon and in the evening, I will stop whatever I'm doing for about 15 minutes, sit down, just make my shot, only focus on doing that, only focus on exactly what I am doing and just relaxing and feeling nice. And then, you know, just sort of calming down from whatever it is that I've been doing during the day. And then after I finish taking my shot, I go back to whatever it is that I was doing before, whatever it is I need to do, whether that's homework and studying or whether that's work for my activism, hanging out with friends because I've started to sort of have a social life again. But that's kind of like my me time and my self-care time to just regenerate between everything that I need to do. Ophelia, I I think you're going to know what I mean when I say this. you're joining us. You've got this for people that are watching on YouTube. I'll describe it for people listening to the podcast. You've got a, a beautiful background behind you with flowers and and butterflies, and you're 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 you're, you're talking about doing homework, and you're talking about all and, and people are going to go. This is not who I expected to see. Right? You know exactly what I mean, right? This is not who I expected to see in a conversation about people who are using supervised consumption services. How much of a role does stigma play into what drives your activism? I think that stigma definitely plays a really, really big role in why I've gotten into activism the way that I have, because definitely like, I know I don't look like what you would expect an intravenous drug user to look like at all. Um, But stigma does even still affect me to some extent because as soon as people hear that I'm an intravenous drug user, like I can pretty much just watch their facial expressions change like so quickly. For example, if I go to see a doctor, for example, and then they ask me what medications are you on? So I'll mention the medications that I take because on a day-to-day basis, I was lucky enough to get a prescription for opiates that I can prepare into shots. So mostly I'm not using illicit street substances. That's more like an occasional thing for me now. But I'll mention exactly what medications I'm on and I can just watch their facial expressions change like very quickly, the way that they react to me, the way that they talk to me. It's such a quick change and it's because of that stigma around drug use. I hope you don't mind me asking, do you want to quit? I mean, is that ultimately the end game? Do you want to get off opiates? Honestly, not really. I I did try quitting for a while. I was totally sober, no opiates, no cigarettes, no nothing for about five months. But I was just absolutely miserable. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything 
And part of my addiction as well, I think, is to the actual procedure of taking the shots. Because as I mentioned, like that is a self-care thing for me almost. That's how I unwind and that's how I sort of process the rest of the day. So when I was trying to get sober and I was trying to not do that at all, I was so desperate to have anything to inject that I even tried injecting lime juice at one point, which is a horrible idea. I do not know why I did that. I just wanted to take something, Hmm. even though I knew it wouldn't actually have any effect. I just wanted to do the procedure. So that's part of why I don't want to quit because that is definitely part of my addiction is the actual procedure. But it's also because of how miserable I am when I'm completely sober. I don't drink alcohol. I don't take any other substances. I don't smoke weed. The only thing I do is opiates. So much like, you know, someone else would have a drink with dinner or someone would smoke cigarettes in between their work day to have a cigarette break. It's pretty much the same thing for me. I don't think about it when I'm not doing it. It's just my substance of choice for managing the day-to-day trials and tribulations of life. Hmm. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And of course, I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, I just, I was just going to say that if I started to notice that I was having like negative health consequences, then I probably would look into quitting. But right now, like my veins aren't collapsing or I haven't have, I haven't had an overdose since last December. So since there haven't been any negative health consequences that I've seen since I've gotten my use under control, I feel like I'm safe to still continue doing this for a while. I appreciate your, your candor and your honesty. Um, the reason why I think it's, it's important to understand where you're at uh, in that context is, is because the, you know, the reason why we're talking, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. You'd always be welcome on this show. We can talk anytime. <laughs> But this statement of claim filed on on Friday, I mean, the the reason why so many advocates and and citizens, quite frankly, like myself, public health professionals, physicians, uh, why so many people are so appalled and so troubled uh, by Alberta's changed approach to managing this opioid epidemic is because it hangs on the idea that supervised consumption services perpetuate people's addiction or people's drug use while treatment centers and counseling while that is important is the only or the logical way to go and quite frankly the language that we hear from the the ministers and associate ministers and premiers all indicate that unless they believe that a person who uses drugs is intent on quitting then really there's no reason why public health should play a role in keeping people alive. And I think it's a completely flawed argument. And quite frankly, it's offensive and it devalues human life. And that's why I think that the conversation is, is so important. Would you tell us about, I don't mean to, to trigger or, or if it's an inappropriate question, just tell me, but your, your overdose in December, were you at SafeWorks when that occurred? Can you, can you tell us how you're still here with us today? Um, I wasn't at SafeWorks. This was just before I started using SafeWorks. Mm. So ever since I started going to SafeWorks, I actually haven't had a single overdose. Like not even there. I have not needed to be naloxone since then. This is the last one I ever had. But I was at my mom's house when this happened. 
And before this, I had been using substances with someone else. We both got into it on our own. And then eventually we started just doing it together. So then if one of us overdosed, we could lock stone like the other and, you know, just kind of make sure that that's taken care of. But for this last one, I was at my mom's house and I took a risky shot. Um, For me, I define a risky shot as a shot where you don't know for sure that you can handle how much of the substance you put into it because it kind of like varies how strong you make a shot. And, you know, there's like some amounts that you know for sure that you can handle, you'll be fine. Like you're not going to overdose from what's in that syringe but a risky shot is where you put a little bit more into it than you know you can handle so I had taken one of those and I come to in my room to paramedics and police officers who were in there with me who had administered naloxone so I was definitely glad that they had revived me but I also have a lot of anxiety about hospitals now since the times that I have been to the hospital have not been very great. Some highlights would include like nurses telling me that I should make sure no one naloxones me next time. So I stop wasting the health resources or various things like that. A nurse told Um, you that? Yeah. Yeah. The nurses definitely have a lot of stigma around drug use and a lot of their own biases, which I do understand from looking at it from a converse side than my own. However, I do feel like they're definitely very, very open about where they stand on the issue. So as soon as a nurse knows that you struggle with substance abuse, like there have been some exceptions and some nurses who are still very, very kind and very thoughtful and excellent to be around even when they know that you are struggling with those kinds of issues but there are some nurses who will be very open about you know exactly what they think of you i've had firefighters tell me ophelia that that um you know working out out of some of the the fire halls that over the course of a of a 10-hour shift or a 14-hour overnight shift that they'll respond to 10 to 15 opioid overdoses per shift and it's taking yeah. up a, and, and it's and it's taking a lot of their time and it's pulling them out of the fire halls. And to me, it's like that only strengthens my resolve to see supervised consumption services well exactly. funded and supported. You're not going to. Exactly. Because then that limits how many actual overdose calls are going to come in if people have a safe place that they can go to take those kinds of drugs big time you're completely right and so you've described to us and and we've heard this i mean i think of interviews that we've had on this show through our first eight months where we've understood more about systemic racism in healthcare barriers to access Mm -hmm. in healthcare and really unless you've walked a mile in those shoes it's something that's really hard to understand and i appreciate you sharing with us what your interactions or what your relationship quite frankly is like uh, with SafeWorks, you've talked about, uh, you know, obviously, you know, safe needles and clean needles. You've talked about relationships. Yeah. In other words, you know, friendships that you've had there, uh, which are also inroads to people accessing healthcare. Where would you be without Absolutely. supervised consumption services? Candidly, probably dead. That That's that's probably exactly where I would be, because before I got SafeWorks, my usage definitely 
it was now. Um, I have definitely had a lot of overdoses. And even though that one in December was the last one and definitely the most traumatic for me, I have had a lot before that. Um, and before I actually started going to SafeWorks and seeing that, you know, harm reduction is actually a thing and that there are ways to make your usage safer without stopping. Before that, I, I was essentially just waiting to see how many shots I could take before I would eventually not survive one. Like I didn't think that I would actually stay alive for very much longer. But SafeWorks showing me that there is actually a way to, you know, still take the drugs that you're taking and actually be safe about it, or at least as close to safe as possible, has definitely been really the only reason that I'm still alive and the only reason that I know that I want to get a PhD in narcotic chemistry now. I want to actually make a better overdose response kit so that people can be revived even after benzodiazepine overdoses or stimulant overdoses, things like that. Um, but without them, I, I definitely wouldn't even be here at all. So it's, it's really thanks to them that I'm doing everything that I'm doing for the cause of harm reduction and why I'm actually trying so hard to educate people about what harm reduction is. I, th I think that people have so many misconceptions and misunderstandings ab about so many angles of this conversation, Start starting with who uses Absolutely. drugs, right? Starting with who uses them mm -hmm. and where they use them and why they use them. And there are so many important conversations that need to be have. I mean, you're even describing, you know, what you what you believe may be a, a safe shot versus one that's a little bit more risky. I mean, that's not even taking into account people that don't have access to safe supply that have no idea that perhaps they've got a bad batch of carfentanil that's mm -hmm. going to knock them out no matter yeah. who they are. And I shouldn't even be candid and say yeah. knock them out. We're talking about people lives here and i think it's just yeah. so important what's what's one misconception that, that that you hear again and again uh that you think really needs to be addressed well i think that one misconception that i would really like to address is when i was reading some of the responses to the safeworks lawsuit and all of that i know that someone in the government said that they're not against harm reduction specifically but they just don't want to forget that the goal is for recovery. And I feel like that is somewhat a misconception because the great thing about harm reduction is that unlike, you know, having a goal of abstinence for everyone who is using substances, harm reduction, it kind of takes people wherever they're at and supports them however they want to be supported. So if you want to get sober, harm reduction will support you with that. There's a lot of resources. There's a lot of great counselors and a lot of great recovery centers. And if you want to get sober, then you will be supported in doing so, even under harm reduction. If you want to make your use safer for a while and then eventually get sober, you'll be supported. If you don't foresee yourself getting sober for any reason, you'll still be supported. And I don't think that the goal necessarily has to be sobriety for everyone. I think that it's really important to remember that no matter what, like this is a person who is using drugs. And I, I, I would just, as an example, 
like, as we mentioned about risky shots earlier, to some extent, everything is a risky shot to some extent. There are some shots that you know you're pretty much playing Russian roulette, but there are, all, there are also shots that are maybe safer, but they are still going to carry risk. So as a person, like thinking about yourself to whoever is listening to this, imagine how much physical or emotional pain that you would need to be in in order to actually take a shot that you know has a pretty good chance of killing you. Like you have to be in a lot of pain to take that risk and in a lot of pain to take that risk again and again and again and again. Like that's a person who is using drugs no matter what their habits are. And if someone eventually decides to get sober, that's fantastic. But even if someone doesn't, that's still a person and harm reduction can still help them to make their habits so that they can still work, they can still live a full life. They don't need to have an ambulance dispatched to them every week to deal with the overdoses. So harm reduction really will decrease costs for healthcare, and it'll also decrease how much people are personally impacted by their substance use. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, Ophelia Cara, I'm, I'm already looking forward to future conversations. We'll, we'll follow along with your journey toward your PhD uh, on behalf of this audience. And I know that this interview will be widely shared. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for your openness. Thank you for helping us understand a day in the life, so to speak. Thanks for it all. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And as I, if I could just say one last thing Please. in closing, I know that there's definitely a lot of separation between people who use illicit drugs or people who use IV drugs. But for the most part, what I've noticed is that everyone does have a substance, whether it's smoking a joint after work or having a cigarette break, whether it's going down to the bar to have a drink. For the most part, everyone has something that they do to make their life a little bit easier. Maybe it's not a substance, but everyone has something that makes their lives a little bit easier. And I know that maybe smoking a joint is more socially acceptable, but for some people like me, I get hallucinations. I have paranoia whenever I smoke weed. It does not affect me well. I can't digest alcohol. But I think that it's really, really important that we look at where we're all similar and look at exactly that we're all people. Everyone has a personality. Everyone has pain. Everyone has reasons that they might be motivated to do this. But if harm reduction can help drug users to actually live a full life and not be as affected by their substance use, then it's also going to help society to not be as affected by substance use. So harm reduction isn't saying that everyone should use opiates, but if someone does decide to use opiates, I don't think that anyone should die for that decision. So well said. Ophelia Cara, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank and you she, so and, much. And, I mean, she, she's bang on. She's bang on. Every, I mean, th these are people, right? These are human beings. I'll give you a sense, like, j just at SafeWorks, just in Calgary alone. And we told you that, that Arches and Lathbridge had more visits than, than the Beltline location in Calgary, than SafeWorks. But, but SafeWorks had, in 2020 had 53,725 visits, almost 54,000, almost a thousand, more than a thousand a week to paint a picture of, of perspective there. 
Nicole says this interview is very informative, says I really appreciate her vulnerability. Heidi says I uh, have a friend who's an MD, uh, a pathologist at the morgue who tried to tell me that the opioid crisis was bigger than COVID in Alberta last winter. I didn't believe her at the time, but I do now. Mana, it's great to see Dr. Mana Saleh listening to the show, says what an important discussion. I'm so grateful that Ophelia shared part of her story. I see that MLA Janice Irwin is watching the show this morning. She says supervised consumption saves lives. Harm reduction saves lives. Listen to people with lived experience like Ophelia. Listen to those on the front lines. Others of you just leaving comments like, wow. I see that I've got some personal text messages as well on my phone from people who I know care very much. These are people that work in medical services. These are people that work in emergency. I'm not going to read those live on the fly. I should probably vet them first because I know that this is a conversation that is intensely personal for so many people. Can you imagine if we took the approach that the Alberta government is taking right now with regards to the opioid epidemic and applied it to any other health scenario to any other scenario where somebody walked in and and needed admission to the hospital required immediate medical care and we took it upon ourselves to moralize or, or to run that situation through our own ethics blender to determine whether or not we thought that their life was worth saving we would never accept it we would never accept denying medical care to somebody who's experiencing lung cancer or heart disease because they had a history of smoking we would never accept that would we but we do here i want to remind you that august 31st coming up in a week and a day from now it's international overdose awareness day it's going to be an impossibly difficult day for millions of people that have lost loved ones to drug use to overdose it The goal of the day is to spread the message that the tragedy of overdose death is preventable. It's a global event and obviously ultimately aiming to raise awareness of overdose and reduce the stigma of drug related death. If you'd like some background on this, you can check our archives, including on June 7th. When uh, registered nurse Claire O'Gorman and Dr. Jennifer Jackson shared why they believe changes to supervised consumption will have massive and harmful impacts across the province. We've, we've had phenomenal conversations with Garth Mullins, who joined us, the podcaster uh, himself, a drug user. Of course, my brother Kyle Jesperson has joined us on this show before, and you can search our archives on YouTube and on our podcast as well. Kyle works at the Insight supervised consumption service on east hastings down in vancouver that's essentially one that that people will say has served as a model over the past 20 years or so for delivery of harm reduction services across canada no overdose deaths out of millions of visits to insight over the past 20 years or so we welcome your comments and your feedback to talk at ryanjesperson.com we encourage you to share this interview Uh, with whomever you think it might resonate. And of course, to use the hashtag RealTalkRJ, which is a great way to get our attention as as well. It kind of brings all those conversations together so people can search that hashtag and see what's going on, see what real talkers are talking about. 
In just a moment, we'll check in with uh, former uh, associate government minister, former MLA Donna Kennedy Glanz, who's who's just recently lost her spot as vice chair on the board at the Banff Center. Uh, we'll find out why. And I'm looking forward to that in just a second. I wanted to remind you today how proud we are to partner with the team at Local Waste. Now, it's a short week for us, uh, Monday through Thursday, which means that trash talks coming up on Thursday instead. It means you've got three days now to send us your emails. What's driving you absolutely nuts? You can get it off your chest to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local waste has been in the garbage and recycling management business for decades, a family-owned business still and always growing. They had a big announcement just this past weekend, another expansion into another Western Canadian community. Our congratulations to our friends at Local Waste. If you'd like to learn more about what they could do for your business, they pride themselves on their relationships with their partners. Check them out online at localwaste.com. We also wanted to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for the entire month of August are supporting the Wakutuin Society. This is a society that hosts retreats for Indigenous women that have survived both residential schools and cancer. It prepares these women to re-enter their communities strengthened and ready to take on leadership roles. Through the month of August, a dollar from every ice cream cone sold at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road, a dollar will go to the Wakutuin Society. And a big shout out to those friends of ours at Dairy Queen for putting their money where their mouth is. They said they wanted to do something meaningful in the context of reconciliation, and that's exactly what they're doing. Well, this is a story that may have been flying under the radar a little bit, considering how much is going on right now. But if you follow politics in Western Canada, and particularly Alberta, you know the name Donna Kennedy Glanz. She's been recognized as a somewhat centrist, progressive conservative. She served as an associate minister in an MLA out of Calgary. She's a lawyer and uh, now a former member, vice chair of the Banff Center Board of Governors. She's the author of a few books. She's got a new one coming out in February titled Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Tools for Moving Beyond Business as Usual, making her Real Talk debut today. Ms. Kennedy Glanz, it's great to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Mm-hmm. Thanks for asking me, Ryan. It's great to be here. Uh, I, I know that some people were surprised to see you removed as vice chair uh, at Banff Center's board of directors before we get into why you think it happened and, and some pretty direct questions on that front. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with what the Banff Center is all about, can you give us a, a quick synopsis? Absolutely. The Banff Center has been around for almost 90 years in Alberta. It's built on federal land, so it's a lease from the federal government. It sits under Buffalo Mountain in the town of Banff. It's a very special site. Historically, that site was um, used by First Nations as a gathering place. It's where, in times of crisis, they came together to come up with better ideas, more resilient ideas for dealing with crises. And so it was a perfect place to put a, an artistic community, a, a place where artists and leaders and, and Indigenous leaders as well could come and test new ideas, um, safe space to try things, um, to advance their thinking. I've gone there as a leadership trainee in the 1990s when I was a, you know, just a young executive and I needed to learn new ways to do things. 
And it was a safe place to ask really important questions that you couldn't ask in a, in a normal setting. So it's been around for a long time and it's a very special place to a lot of people across Canada. And it's, it's a good hybrid between Alberta, you know, Alberta hosts this, it's a post-secondary institute, but it's also in national lands and it's accessible across Canada. So it's, it's a gem. So, and I want to encourage you to push back on anything I say, because I'm not, I don't have a narrative I'm trying to drive. I just have sincere questions here, but, but as I've followed your career, uh, you know, over the past number of years, what jumps out is a leadership run for the progressive conservatives, right? You want, you wanted to lead that party. Um, you withdrew from that leadership race. You say that that was your decision. And then you agreed to join uh, ultimately, Premier Jason Kenney's transition team. So you were a part of that team. You're appointed in August of 2019. You joined the BAMP Center board. And in June of 2020, you're made the vice chair and the chair of the governance and recruitment committee. Is this all accurate? And does this all make sense to include in the same... Actually, no, it's not. But thank you for asking for allowing me to clarify. Please that. do. That's unusual. People don't allow you to do that most often. Well, we do here. Um, I, I ran for leadership because at the time in, in uh, when the when there was a leadership race um, in the Progressive Conservative Party, um, of which I was a member, uh, I was mentoring about 100 young people who were interested in understanding how to do politics. And, and with their great encouragement, and, and it was a great place for them to learn, I, I went into that race, eyes wide open, and I said to them in September when we dove in and we dove in with everything we had, I said to them, if by the next decision point where we have to, the next tranche of cash is due, um, we don't feel like we can win this, then we're going to pull out because that's it's not very nice to take people's money when you know that somebody's already won the race. So unless Jason Kenney had done, you know, murdered somebody, I think he was going to win that race and that's how it played out. So we withdrew and that was fine. That was it was set up that way up front. I did not join the transition team, but I think what I'm a I'm a person who lives on the edge of the inside. I you know, there was a democratic process. I wasn't really happy with it, but it was what people wanted and they wanted to see some merger of the conservatives. I wasn't a big fan of the merger of the PCs and the reform federally, but I kind of thought it would be better to sit at least near the table rather than throwing stones from the outside. So I, when asked, I offered up ideas about what it would take to bring the PCs into that fold. Eventually, they got to some truce, which is unraveling like mad right now. Um, but that's how I'm wired. I, I, you know, it would have been easy to walk away. And I, I get I understand and respect why people did. I chose not to be part of the transition team per se, but just to be at least accessible to give my opinion. And, and so for what it was worth. That's what I did. Uh, that's that's a misunderstanding. I'm, I, I was always under the impression I saw you take a whole lot of flack for it uh, online. So you were never <laughs> you were never officially on that no. transition team. I think that that's going to surprise no. a lot of people right now. Were you consulted? Yes. Yes, I was. Uh, there are lots of things that confuse people. People still don't understand why I sat independent under Alison Redford. And for the record, um, I, I sat independent because in a Treasury Board decision, 
that I, I was at the table for. I was asked by her chief of staff, as were the other members of Treasury Board, to approve $3 billion leaving the Heritage Savings Trust Fund to a fund that the Premier could direct. And I said, no. I've sat on the board of Transparency International. I worked in 35 countries. I was not going to say yes to that, but I was bound to confidentiality and I could say nothing. And I didn't. And it was really awful because people made assumptions, which they do, and I understand that. I lost friends over that, which is really hurtful. But that's life. That's what politics is like. And I couldn't do anything different. So, you know, when Allison stepped down two days after I said that, you know, people, you know, they, they assume it's a cat fight. My good Lord, people don't go into politics to fight like in high school. Well, it, some it's, don't. <laughs> it's way bigger than that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let, let's just warn our audience. And maybe I'm warning you right now, too, Donna, that this interview is probably going to swerve all over the place because I've got all kinds of questions. And as soon as you divulge something, I'm going to want to follow up on that as well. But it's it's interesting mm-hmm. when you when you characterize, uh, you know, that that Redford era in Alberta politics, I understand that knives have always been out. Uh, I think I think of, you know, former Premier Ed Stelmack right around the time of the royalty review. I think of Premier Allison Redford, of course, and, and, and essentially her own party demanding her resignation. And then right now, I don't even know how you'd characterize 2014 to, to, to present. Um, but it dumpster fire probably fits, uh, with regards to the political tone. Was it a no brainer for you to cap off your provincial political career with, with one election, with one term as an MLA? Was that, was that an easy decision? You know, it it wasn't my plan. I, I think I'm not a career politician and, and I think there's, it's good not to have a lot of career politicians. So I would have done two terms, but I went to, um, Prentice, who I respected, and I, he asked me to run. And I just said to him, Jim, I, I, you still, I'm sitting in the back corner. I'm, uh, I really love my constituency, so I was very active, but I, I'm really ambitious and I've got a lot of energy. So, you know, I'm not bored sitting back here, but it, it wasn't as fulfilling as it could have been. And the issue of, you know, what happened a year ago really hadn't been addressed. Plus, then he was going to run a year early, and everybody in my constituency was saying, you know, that's insane. You can't do that. So it never felt right to run, and I declined. Um, and I, I don't think, like, I'm not a person who thinks you have to be a politician elected to actually have influence. And, for example, what we're seeing here happening at the PAMP Center with, you know, this this, this is a nasty piece of business. I didn't choose to have this big debate in public, and I didn't do anything wrong and I will defend myself because I have to now and I have to do it in public but there are a whole bunch of people who care about the BAM Center who are now saying hey wait a minute that's ours I, I would have voiced that um wait a minute like that's you know no I don't like where that's going and I'm going to speak up being part of something that emerges from the grassroots and is grounded in people's genuine feelings about what they think is possible. That's really exciting. Is that politics? Kind of. Like, so I, you know, you can be elected or you don't have to be elected. I, I think we can influence in a lot of different ways. Now, I, I'll ask you about leadership at the Banff Center, in particular the CEO in just a moment. But, but let me ask you first, if you take issue with some of the reporting 
around your departure <laughs> on, uh, at the globe and mail dot com. Uh, this piece by Marsha Lederman uh, says, quote, the seed for Ms. Kennedy Glenn's removal goes back to a CBC radio interview in May in which she commented on the way that Premier Jason Kenney had handled discord within the UCP caucus, in particular, the expulsion of two MLAs. Did that CBC radio interview prompt a request for your resignation just days later? Is that accurate? That is accurate, but it was a good excuse, um, I think, for the chair and the CEO to do something that they had been wanting to do for a long time, which is to mute me. And it was just a good excuse. Um, it was a CBC radio interview. I do interviews with radio and TV. I've done a lot of media. It's of great interest to me. Um, and I'm, it's comfortable space. And I think people need to hear candid voices from, you know, that's part of the zeitgeist. I think that's important. Um, but I did do an interview after um, Jason Kenney had a few of his caucus depart. It's logical. I'm a former... MLA. I'd actually sat independent myself. So when asked at the end of that interview, you know, what advice would you offer to Jason Kenney if, if asked? And I, I said, you know, it might be wise for him to listen to his more critical friends. I'd give that advice to anybody. It's advice that's in this new book, Teaching a Dinosaur to Dance. I mean, it, it's important. You got to listen to people who don't agree with you. That you, you really do if you're going to do a good job. I, I listen to people who don't agree with me all the time. I think I learn from those people and I test the resolve of my own ideas. Anyway, I got a call that morning from the chair, browbeaten by Adam Watrous, treated like I was a teenager who had stolen the family car and gotten into an accident. It was that awful. And I said to him, Adam, like, really? Like, because I'm on the board of the BAMP Center, I can't talk anymore in public. I, I, I can't express a view. I mean, it's a valid view. I've said nothing about the BAMP Center. I've never said anything about the BAMP Center that's negative in public ever. And I get that. But I'm not, you know, censored from ever speaking about these kinds of things. That would be insane. Imagine an arts institution, an arts organization where we said to everyone, Oh, can't say anything bad about this place ever. Can't say anything bad about the government ever. Like, no, you don't do that. But anyway, we disagreed. And then the next day he called an executive committee meeting. I'm on the executive committee because I chair governance committee and I'm vice chair, but I wasn't invited. And then he phoned me that day, Saturday, and said, you're off the board and we'll write the letter for you, which I thought was hilarious, except it wasn't. He was really serious. And I said to him, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing illegal. I've done nothing unethical. This is absolutely preposterous. And anyway, he thought differently. And it was a divisive issue on the executive committee. And the other lawyer on the executive committee is, a, is, a, is Eric Harvey. Um, his, his grandfather helped found the Bath Center. And Eric was totally frustrated by this and anger. In fact, he left the board early before his tenure was over. That's a statement. Um, anyway, next day they had another meeting and I said, I'm not going anywhere. Like you can yell at me and do whatever you want, but you don't get to do this. And I'm not going to stand here and let you do it. So stop. I'm 61 years old. What the heck are you guys doing? What if you did this to a 30 year old? They'd run away and never come back again. Like, stop with this kind of behavior. I was really upset by this because 
it was just the style of we don't like somebody, we don't like what they say, we run them off, we make it miserable. Well, that's not a good approach. But there's that. But this is so a trend, I, Donna. This is a trend in Alberta right now under this premier Uh, and people including myself and you are paying the price for speaking our minds. I mean, shouldn't Albertans be troubled by this? I think so. I'm really worried about it. In fact, I was taking the ICD director's course this winter spring and they asked me to be the valedictorian, which was silly of them because I was kind of ramped up about this and I couldn't say anything about it in public, right? Back to that issue. And I, I did this um, valedictorian speech in June, and it was a total rant on self-censorship and censorship in organizations, which I see happening all the time. It wasn't, it's not just about me, but I see people in companies not feeling comfortable speaking up, and it's just awful what's happened. I mean, it's really, people are afraid because they'll get thumped on the head, and they do. I mean, I've been pretty, I feel like a baseball bat's been taken to my head. You know, so how do we expect people to step up? So I did this little rant and a few of the people um, that I was working, you know, training with in this ICD program were really excited about it and said, wow, what triggered that? And I said, well, you may find out later. And as it turns out, they will. So where from here? What happens now? Well, I think for your for your listeners, it's important to, to understand the end of the story, which, well, maybe the middle of the story. Um, we kind of had, you know, a, a summer with the kind of rocky a little bit, some tough issues on the board. And there are really tough issues to manage. And but nothing like, you know, nothing where I thought that I, anything had really changed too much. And I opened up my computer about two weeks ago, not even two weeks ago and there was a note an email from the chair saying to me donna um we're asking for your resignation because you violate you continue to violate the code of ethics no grounds it was kind of kafka style you know no explanation and uh, if you don't resign by tomorrow noon um we're gonna ask the minister of post-secondary to remove you and i responded very obviously very very assertively because that was stunning to me. I was just stunned. I responded to the whole board. And then the next five days later, I got an email from the minister saying, you're rescinded. And, and, and in the same order in council where I was rescinded after two years of a three-year term, um, a man who's a businessman, a friend of the chair, a guy who's a real expert in tourism and commercialization and BAMP was appointed in my stead. Like, What's that message? That was stupid on the part of the government to do that. I think that's like a really obvious, strange thing about the trajectory of the place and their sentiment around it. But I don't think this was directed by the government. I honestly think it came from inside the organization, chair and CEO. And then, you know, they needed a partnership with the government to make it all all happen. So Yes, I'm really upset. I gave that place one week of my time for the last two years as a volunteer. People need to know that. We're not paid to do this. And I would do it again and again and again and again because it matters so much to me that the place becomes what its potential is. Right now in Alberta, in Canada, we've got so many big issues where the BAMP Center could play a role in finding solutions and bringing the right people to the table. I think it's a magnificent, unusual, exceptional place. 
and we're not doing anything. And we've lost most of the indigenous training team. They've left since spring. CEO never raised that with us. I heard it from people outside the system. But, so that's gone, all that truth and reconciliation work. I offered, I did a lot of work with residential school. Um, I actually was part of a team that submitted a request to the International Criminal Court to actually intervene because something needed to be done. That issue needs some focus. That would be a great place for that issue to be addressed. The artists feel like they're, you know, they're performance artists. They're not performance artists. This is not a tourist site. This is not a place where you go for performance. That's not the priority. Yes, they do it, but it's a place to, if you were, you know, if you're in a dance team, it's a place you try new things. It's a place you experiment. If you're writing, you can go and write for a month in one of those latent studios, which were totally closed during COVID. All these isolated, perfectly suited to COVID sites were never touched during COVID. So I'm pretty frustrated, but I'm not willing to give up. And I'm really encouraged that there are a lot of Albertans and beyond Alberta, we're hearing from people who are saying, hey, I want to be part of this. I want to have a voice in this. Put a moratorium on commercialization at the BAMP Center just so we can have a public discussion. Let's not just, you know, let it happen like under Klein where you things get run down and you throw the keys to somebody, let them take it over into the private sector. Let's not have that happen. Let's actually have a, a serious public discussion about this. These are public assets that all of us have paid into. They should not be thrown to somebody for a song to make money. And I feel really strongly about that. There are so many fronts on which I think people uh, share serious concern uh, when it comes to investments that in particular Albertans have made in arts and the environment and essentially anything that does not directly drive the economy according to one very narrow understanding of what drives the economy. And I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I, and I think that this is yet another example. You alluded at the very beginning of our conversation to, to the, the, the progressive faction of conservative politics in Alberta. Obviously, you ran under the banner, so you'd qualify as one. And I voted for that party many times. And, and I would describe myself as a small P, small C, progressive conservative currently politically homeless what does the future of conservative or frankly politics look like in alberta according to your assessment oh I, i'm asked that question a lot and i'm i feel homeless myself i don't have a membership in a political party um i feel like I wish that we could get to a place, and I've had this conversation with, with people who are in the ND party and people who are in the conservative ranks. I, I wish we could actually build a party or a coalition that was more responsive to who we are as Albertans. We're not far right and we're not far left. Is there any way that somebody like Rachel Notley could bring the NDs closer to the center? I know that's a big ask, but I think there are an awful lot of Albertans who are very comfortable right now with the situation with the nurses and with healthcare in general, where they understand the need for a union, um, cargo plant. When we saw why you need unions, we understand that there's a place for them. I think that rhetoric is kind of diffused, which is really important. So I, I think if, if there was a way to take 
the parties, I, I don't have a lot of hope right now for the UCP. I think it's just a bit of a mashup of too many interests that all want to speak. And I think it's very disjointed. So taking something like the NDs, and I know it's not for me to say because I didn't come from that party and this is sounding a little bit aggressive to say it. I don't mean it that way. I just want to be able to figure out a way to bring some of the the practical thinking and the values-based thinking that is purely Albertan to the decision-making tables. Because I don't want to live in a, I don't want my kids or my granddaughter to live in a province where you swing from left to right and left to right. I mean, gosh, that's hard. Uh, healthcare policies get built up and then they get taken down. You do economic diversification one way and then you knock it down. We, we can't endure that. We haven't got the capacity right now to do that. It's too much energy. It's too many resources. It's too confusing to people outside the province. It's really hard for us here. So I think something that was more stabilizing and if you could just get different voices in those parties a coalition um, a reference to different voices we have not seen this with the with the Kenny government he goes to people who he knows are very very aligned um, and, and it's it's narrow it's a very narrow view right now Donna Kennedy Glads is a former associate government minister former PCMLA out of Calgary a former member of the Banff Center Board of Governors, a lawyer and the author of a number of books, including one slated for release in February of 2022, Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Tools for Moving Beyond Business as Usual. Thanks for making time for us today, Donna. It's nice to hear your voice again. Well, thank you. I'm really grateful that you asked these questions. Thanks. You bet. We'll talk again. Yeah, I mean, when Donna talks about surrounding yourself with differing opinions or listening to different points of view, in, in my mind, in my assessment, that's a pretty important leadership quality. I try to think, you know, this is like probably one of the more hot button type scenarios. If I try to think of an example of taking a dissenting voice or a different voice, you remember under Premier Rachel Notley uh, with that oil sands committee remember that when zipporah berman was on it uh the the, the, she's essentially how how would zipporah describe herself would she be an anti-pipeline activist would that be fair hoyles you think an anti-pipeline i think so i mean one of one of the comments i think that was really trotted out quite frequently was you know she said that whatever's left in the oil sands we should leave it in the ground that was probably the one that really kind of resonated with people and and politicians, conservative politicians, including Jason Kenney, at that time, leader of, of the official opposition, was was saying, you've got somebody on your oil sands action committee that's saying we should leave all of it in the ground. I mean, how can you possibly justify it? And the rebuttal in my paraphrase was what value will this committee's findings have? If the discussion has not included voices from different perspectives, that's the value of including different perspectives. And when when you consider the leadership style of Alberta's current premier, there is not a value placed on that. As a matter of fact, dissenting voices get the boot. James says, "I've, I've got friends that will not speak their minds in their workplace because they're UCP shops. Whitrium says, it sounds like my work. Craig says, my brother's scared to speak up at his work site. He thinks he'll get attacked in some way. One guy did speak up 
and, and his car got keyed. Alyssa says, my friend runs a large nonprofit and she was messaged by a minister's office on her personal Facebook page for posting about the budget. She was told your funding can be taken away. Alyssa goes on to say they're sociopaths. Nicole says, many of us are scared to speak up. A lot of us have been warned by our place of employment. Hmm. James says, in my more paranoid moments, I wonder if my past political activities have landed me on a list, keeping me out of politically connected workplaces. And Dwayne's right. Dwayne says Stephen Harper was at a global climate summit and he said the oil sands eventually need to be phased out. It's true. What did Harper say? I think he said it was like over 50 or 100 years, but it's obvious. He used to run street lamps in London on whale blubber. At some point, you move on. At some point, you figure out this is what I was talking about with Park Power earlier. You know, a power company that sells, that makes available and sells access to natural gas, to electricity, which is generated a lot of it in Alberta. I don't know where Parks comes from. I shouldn't speak out of turn here, but a lot of our electricity, some people would probably be surprised at how much of it is generated by coal, right? It was, I was telling you all real talkers about a conversation I had with a friend the other day, a new friend um, about EVs, about electric vehicles, who said EVs are a great start toward reducing emissions. But until we can charge those car batteries with power that is not generated by coal, then we've still got a long road to hoe. We do. However, it eliminates the emissions 100%. from the vehicles. So it's like... But not the emissions from the coal. No. So it's just, it's like, it's a, it's a drawing down is what it's doing. And it's, it's stopping the emissions from everyone's car that are going to work and going to groceries yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. We should always ask the EV owner in the room. No, I, 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 yeah, 100%. I am an EV owner. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, so my conversation with this person, he, he, he was talking, he lives in British Columbia and he was talking about how much more power is generated in BC by hydro than by coal. And he was just saying Alberta's got a ways to go, which is true. I'm happy. We need to be pushed. It's why sports teams, you know, it's always going to come back to a sports metaphor. It's why sports really? teams. Yeah. It's why sports teams have coaches, right? The coaches only job is not to come into a room and talk about all the things the team did. Well, every once in a while, there's got to be a tough assessment. Where can we do better? And ultimately, when you listen, when you're able to identify that, that's exactly what Donna was just talking about. When you're able to listen to critical voices. I mean, which friends voices to you or which advisors, real talkers to you, who in your life, whose feedback or assessment means the most? It's not always the ones that tell you what a great job you're doing all the time. It's the ones that are telling you where you're falling short, where you can do better, where you're losing the room. Dwayne's right. He says, hey, hey, he says other premiers have punished MLAs as well. Remember Lyle Oberg? <laughs> remember Lyle Oberg? I came across those. Remember, Sam, I found that stack of my notebooks from back in the day and I was covering the provincial budget. I wish I could remember what year it was, but it was early in my reporting career. This is like more than 10 years ago. And Oberg was the minister that had just tabled that budget. And I remember talking to him and then ultimately he finds himself in the annex. I mean, he wasn't even he, he lost his office. He did. He wasn't even in the building anymore. He was across the property in the annex. I mean, there have always been consequences for speaking out politically and speaking truth to power in some circumstances. I'm grateful that Donna made time for us. I think that we cleared up a pretty 
commonly held misconception, including by me, that she was never officially on that transition team. Boy, did she take lumps for that. Yeah, it was interesting to just uh, if folks are listening to this on the podcast, go back and watch the YouTube her face when yeah. she just when she was like, oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. That's that's not actually what went down. And then probably my face, too, as I'm trying to figure out which part of that was inaccurate. <laughs> Leadership race withdrew of her own volition, transition team and ban- and I'm going, which one? Am I, where am I blowing it? She said yeah. I was, was never officially on the transition team. A lot of people felt that. Donna had been and again, I, which is why I'm glad that this was cleared up because I think it. I wonder if it'll change anybody's minds about anything. I don't even know if it matters anymore. I don't even know if Donna cares. She's passed it. It appears to be the case anyway, but people felt like I think that in a way she had somewhat pulled an opportunistic move. And, and, and this is a very heavy word in politics. I, I'll say it somewhat tongue in cheek, but had betrayed the progressive side of the coin. And now here she clarifies this morning that she was never officially on that transition team. Interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. I don't know that I definitely necessarily agree with how far left the NDP were slated in that conversation. Hmm. Um, just watching also the, the real talk uh, chatterbox. You know, people were flagging that as well. That, you know, we're not necessarily... And I, I don't know that the NDP are are necessarily left i see them more as centrist the the ndp in alberta mm. is kind of conservative light yes exactly right yes. like people in alberta don't know what left-wing ndp politics look like if they think that rachel notley is a left-winger exactly rachel notley as a matter of fact across the country i think that you'd have a lot of like hardcore card carrying ndp members that would actually not have much time for her brand of politics people that feel like she didn't do enough on the environment people that feel she didn't do enough on age people feel like all of their priorities for what a new democrat government would look like or would do given a majority government like she had I mean, the NDP did what they wanted on a number of files. The, the UCP are doing what they want on a number of files. That's, I was going to say, the beauty of, but that's the advantage of a majority government is that you can limit debate and ram through legislation. I mean, I'm editorializing using words like ram through, but that's essentially what it is. And I think a lot of people feel like Rachel Notley didn't capitalize enough as much as she could, but you have to understand as well, it's not easy to govern. You can't lose the room. You want to try to achieve re-election. It's, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen here in a couple of years. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen in 2023. I want to take a moment to remind you how proud we are to partner with the team at Friesen Brothers. 16 locations in Alberta communities still family-owned. You know they're the only family-owned and operated grocery chain in the entire province. Started by Frank Loveson more than 65 years ago, an officer of the Order of Canada, an absolute legend of Canadian business. Their newest location in South Edmonton is knocking your socks off. And I know that because you keep telling me every time I run into somebody, one of the first things guaranteed, statistically guaranteed 
one of the first things you're going to tell me about is the Friesen Brothers store in South Edmonton. I was watching their Instagram just yesterday. They've got new drone footage of their rooftop garden. You got to see this. It's unbelievable. You show me how many grocery stores have rooftop gardens. How many grocery stores are keeping bees and selling the honey? Unbelievable stuff. Friesen Brothers, you can find them across Alberta. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Athabasca University. I know that it's... uh, Can I just tell you something really exciting on the docket today for our family? We're going school supply shopping for the very first time. Cute. For the very first time... Do you have a but, list? Oh, so we have a list. I mean, the school provides a list. If I, if I was making a list, we'd be in serious trouble. No, I just loved getting the list. I'd be like, what are, you yeah, you get to oh. check it off. And I was, yeah. telling, I was telling Wyatt about like, kiddo, you get to pick a lunchbox. Like, this is a big deal. Remember back in the day, the lunchbox said so much about your personality. You know, oh, we got the Star Wars lunchbox. Which one did you have? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> My mom is like... She was, you know what she would do? Because my mom's a teacher, you know, right? So she would, she would actually, uh, like the brown paper bags, and she'd yeah. like write names and little messages and like little love notes to her kids on the bags, and uh, so special. Did I ever really have a lunchbox? I don't know if I ever did. Maybe I'm going to live vicariously through Wyatt on this one. This is all leading up to me talking about Athabasca University, by the way. They do not supply lunchboxes, but what they do do is offer world class accredited online programs that offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. So while other elements of your life may be heading back to in-person, your education doesn't have to. You can check out AthabascaU.ca for more on their online on-demand programs, of course, including so many neat ones that we've learned more about. Diversity and inclusion, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all the stuff that's new since we earned our post-secondary degrees, you want to be ready to hit a new workforce with, with fervor and vigor and maybe some new knowledge? AthabascaU.ca is a great place to make that happen. Also wanted to give a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy. I got an update, by the way, from Jake and the team. They've started the installation process at Joey's home. Yeah. No, no, it's not like nobody don't start showing up at the property yet everybody, but the wheels are in motion. You remember this, they were the winner of our Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented by Kubi. So exciting. The Winifred Stewart Society, the recipients there thanks to the hundreds of Real Talkers that cast those votes. Kubi Energy is proudly headquartered in Edmonton, Alberta and Kamloops, BC, which means they have Tesla certified installers that are handling solar installations, commercial, industrial, and residential across Western Canada. You can contact them online today at kubienergy.ca to learn more about what goes into a solar install, what the benefit looks like with regards to when you're going to get your money back, and some of the government incentives, including one right now in the province for agriculture. That's right. If you're an ag producer in Alberta, Kubi Energy can explain to you how your sustainable energy goals could be with you right now, not too far in the distant future. You know, our first show of every broadcast week, our friends at Kubi Energy also get us started off with an optimistic first step, if you will. It's something we like to call positive reflections. 
These are submissions that we've received from you uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's our email address. And of course, sometimes you hit us up on Twitter. This one was flagged by real talker Lindsay, who said, Ryan, have you been following what's going on with Allison Pogi? And I thought, Lindsay, I, I, I'm not sure who Allison Pogi is. And so she sent me the link. So shout out to Lindsay on this one. Check this out. Allison, back on August 12th, tweeted, I don't have many followers and I'm okay with that. My mother died six weeks ago and I miss her. And today is really hard for me. If you see this, just say hello. I need it today. Well, as you can see, Allison Pogi didn't have many followers, but she's got more than 10,000 of them now. And the tweet has 127,000 likes. And maybe it's due in part to people like Ellen DeGeneres, who reached out, said, Allison, I'm sending you a lot of love today. Justin James said, I'm, I hope you're having a better day. Reach out if you need to bend an ear. What about this one from one of my good pals, Jason, the germ guy Tetro said, Allison, thanks for reaching out. The community can be kind and caring. And I hope everyone who sees this will take a moment to say hello. John Dickerson reached out and said, thanks for asking and your faith that we're all human and connected. It reminds me of my mom who died 24 years ago. I hope a little peace has found you and sadness has been replaced by all the good memories of a mother who can be missed so much. God bless. Keith King reached out to remind Allison that waves of grief come and go, but your memories and community are always there. How about our friends Bunsen and Beaker, the science dogs, reached out with a beautiful photo of them on the beach, inviting her to take care, letting her know that they're thinking of her. Shauna, tweeting at Golden Gate Blonde, tweeted, I'm so sorry for your loss. Know that you're not alone. Sassy Serena let Allison know that she lost her own dad seven weeks ago said sometimes there are no words others that it simply isn't fair sending you a hug literally thousands of people connected with allison pogey now a household name really really remarkable stuff and a reminder that twitter doesn't always have to be a cesspool and i wanted to make sure that i included this one as well if you spend a lot of time on our live chat you know who two beaver is well, we maybe don't know who Two Beaver is, but it's a familiar name. And they sent us an email, said, I'm, uh, I wanted to start by saying that um, I don't even like Tim Hortons. That's how you get a Canadian's attention. I don't like Tim Hortons, but I, but I really have to give a huge amount of appreciation and respect for the people who own and manage the Timmies in Slave Lake, Alberta. There was a fellow that worked there. I've known him for decades, worked in the service industry for like 40 years. He's been at this Timmy's for 15 years now. And a few months back, he was very sick with COVID. He was hospitalized for a lengthy period of time. And the management at Tim Hortons had a fundraiser for his family by having a, a donut day. His name's Bill Alook. And the Bill Alook donut day was very kind of them. Now, I'm happy to let you know he did recover from COVID, but there is a sad story. He ultimately ended up passing away unrelated circumstance and the Tim Hortons closed the location for four hours so everyone could attend his service and they planted a tree outside the store as a memorial with a plaque inscribed with one of his favorite salutations. Have a great moose hunting day. In this day and age, I don't see this too often and I feel moved by their actions and appreciation of an outstanding employee. You know, Bill was such a funny guy. He knew everybody and everybody knew him. He was one of the only guys that would ever take my coffee order in Cree. That from Two Beaver. That filled my heart. 
And that's the whole point of this exercise. If you experienced a random act of kindness, if somebody filled your bucket, we'd love to hear the story. You can send it into talk at ryanjesperson.com. Tomorrow's show, wheels are already in motion. We will get to the results of our most recent question of the week. Talking about the Olympics, we'll take a closer look at what's going on in Afghanistan. We'll understand why unvaccinated expectant mothers are having such a tough go right now. There's a specific reason. What should be done about it? Plus, Seth Klein. Looking forward to that conversation. In the meantime, make it a great Monday, Real Talkers. Thanks for showing up for this show. We'll talk to you again soon.